Hey, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be up here to continue our series on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, as we've seen over the past few weeks, Nehemiah is a book about a renovation project, uh, renovation of a wall and renovation of a community. And uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, but, but when I do, you can pretty much guarantee that I'm either watching The Angels Lose <laughs> or I'm watching a home renovation show. So Fixer Upper, Love It or List It, Flipper Flop, Flipper Flop Vegas, <laughs> Flipper Flop Nashville. There's a lot of Flipper Flops. But uh, so, so I'm not I'm not like a handy guy at all. But uh, my father-in-law, who's here today, he he built his house with his own two hands, and it was featured on HGTV a number of years ago. So, but I'm not handy at all. The thing that the thing that appeals to me about these shows is there's like something therapeutic and like almost spiritual about seeing this beat up, like broken down old house, renovated and turned into something brand new and beautiful. And if you've seen these shows, there's a moment in most episodes where I, I like to call it the uh, there's something you need to see moment. And, and what happens is that like everything is going smoothly up to this point, right? So the, the couple, they found the, the house that they want to renovate. They've, they've been able to negotiate a great price for it. They've come in, they've drawn up the plans, how they're going to make it open concept. You know, where they're going to put the shiplap on the walls. They've done the demo day where they rip out the kitchen cabinets. But then the contractor, he calls to them from the other room. Hey, guys, there's something you need to see. And, like, the couple gets the concerned look on their face, right? And then it cuts to commercial. And then it comes back from commercial, and they repeat that line again. Hey, guys, there's something you need to see. Same concerned look. They come into the room. The guy has opened up the wall. And sure enough, there's like incredible like termite damage in there. Or there's mold, or there's asbestos, or there's a problem with the plumbing and they're going to have to rip out all the plumbing and replace it. There's some kind of major issue that needs to be fixed in this house or else the stability and the safety of the home is at risk. And that's where we're at in the story of Nehemiah today. <laughs> Nehemiah is going to run into his own there's something you need to see moment. Uh, he's going he's gonna to hit a problem that threatens to destroy everything that they've been working on as a community. So before we actually jump into today's passage, I want to step back and just give us a little bit of context about where we're at in the story of Nehemiah and where the story of Nehemiah is at in the, the broader biblical story. Okay? So the Old Testament tells the story of how God chooses a people for himself. He, he establishes the nation of Israel and he makes a covenant with them. And his plan is that as they follow this covenant, that the knowledge of God and the blessings of God will radiate outward to the world around them. But the problem is they fail in keeping this covenant over and over again. So the kingdom of Israel fractures into two pieces. And the northern kingdom, which keeps the name Israel, it just goes into this downward spiral of idolatry and sin and bad king after bad king until finally God allows the Assyrian Empire to come in and conquer them. The southern kingdom, Judah, has uh, more ups and downs along the way. So good kings and bad kings. It has seasons of following God closely and seasons of turning away from him. But eventually they have their own downward spiral and they run out of chances. They turn to other gods, they get caught up in sin, they neglect the poor and the marginalized, and so God allows them to be conquered by the Babylonian Empire and taken into exile in Babylon. Well, 70 years go by and after the Persian Empire has conquered the Babylonian Empire, the new king of Persia allows some of these exiles 
to begin returning to Jerusalem. And the, the book of Ezra, as we've seen, tells the story of these people coming back to rebuild the temple, the house of worship in Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah comes along several years after that with a plan to rebuild the walls of the city. And so as we've, as we've seen over the past few weeks, everything has been going like surprisingly smoothly up to this point in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes to the Persian king and he asks for permission to return to Jerusalem and build these walls. And not only does the king say yes, but he actually gives him support and finances and protection to be able to make this happen. Then Nehemiah comes and he, he forms a plan to rebuild these walls. He shares it with the people. And as we saw last week, they all joined together side by side and worked together on rebuilding this wall. So things are going great, but then comes the there's something you need to see moment. And so in chapter 4, Nehemiah runs into opposition and physical threats from the outside. There's a couple of guys named Sanballat and Tobiah who come along who threaten the work. And so Nehemiah has to come up with a plan for how he's going to keep building the wall while protecting um, the people. And we're actually going to skip over that chapter today. We're going to come back to Sanballat and Tobiah in the future. But chapter 5, that's where Nehemiah runs into an even bigger internal threat. Okay? This is the, the moldy, termite-infested, asbestos-filled problem that we're talking about. And essentially, the problem is that the people of God are mistreating and oppressing one another. They're neglecting and oppressing the poorest people in their community. And they're repeating some of the same sins that got them sent into exile in the first place. So uh, let's turn to chapter Nehemiah 5 together. Nehemiah chapter 5 together. Um, and I'm going to read it. I'm going to offer some explanation along the way. But as we look more closely at this passage, we're going to come away, I hope, with a greater uh, appreciation of God's heart for those in need. And we're going to come away specifically with, with three practical ways that we as individuals and as a church community can better care for those who are on the margins. So... Nehemiah 5. <clears throat> then there was a great protest of the people and their wives against their fellow Jews. Some said, With our sons and daughters we are many, and we all need grain to eat and stay alive. Others said, We have to mortgage our fields, our vineyards, and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. Still others said, We have had to borrow money against our fields and vineyards in order to pay the king's tax. We are of the same flesh and blood as our kin, and our children are the same as theirs. Yet we are just about to force our sons and daughters into slavery, and some of our daughters are already slaves. There's nothing we can do since our fields and vineyards now belong to others. So just pause right there. What's going on is that all the people, they've been living in and around Jerusalem, they've all been helping out with this wall effort, but as a result, it's, it's hurt their ability to gather and produce food. And on top of that, there is a famine in the land, so they're already facing a food shortage. And then on top of that, the Persian king uh, levies this heavy tax against them. So all these people are having to go deep into debt in order to just be able to afford to live. And they're even selling their, or, or, or close to selling their children into slaves in order to, to get enough food and money to live. So let's pick up in verse 6 with how uh, Nehemiah responds to this. He writes, I was very angry when I heard their protest and these complaints. After thinking it over, I brought charges against the officials and the officers. I told them, you are all taking interest from your own people. I also called for a large assembly in order to deal with them. 
To the best of our ability, I said to them, we have bought back our Jewish kin who have been sold to other nations. But now you are selling your own kin, who must then be bought back by us. At this, they were silent, unable to offer a response. So I continued, what you are doing isn't good. Why don't you walk in the fear of our God? This will prevent the taunts of the nations that are our enemies. I myself, along with my family and my servants, am lending them money and grain. But let's stop charging this interest. Give it back to them right now. Return their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And give back the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you are charging them. They replied, we'll return everything, and we won't charge anything else. We'll do what you've asked. So I called the priests and made them swear to do what they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my robe, saying, so may God shake out everyone from their house and property if they don't keep this promise so may they be shaken out and emptied. The whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And then starting from 14 onward, Nehemiah zooms out, and he uh, takes the perspective from 12 years later, after he has served as governor over this people for 12 years. He says, In addition, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, neither I nor my family ate from the governor's food allowance. The earlier governors who had come before me laid heavy burdens on the people. They took food and wine from them, as well as 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants oppressed the people. But because I was God-fearing, I didn't behave in this way. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. We acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. 150 Jews and officials, along with those who came to us from surrounding nations, gathered around my table. One ox six choice sheep and birds were prepared each day. Every 10 days, there was a large amount of wine. Yet even with this, I didn't ask for the governor's food allowance because of the heavy burden on the people had to carry. Remember in my favor, my God, all that I've done for this people. So we, uh, we learned last week that we're getting a new name. Uh, in September, we're going to be called Mercy Commons, right? Yeah. As Sean and, and Nick shared last week, that's partially a, a recognition of something that's already true of this community. We're a community of mercy, but it's also uh, an aspirational and a prophetic call for us to become more and more a people who represent the mercy of God and bring it to the world around us. And what we're going to see this morning as we unpack this passage from Nehemiah is a community that learns a lesson about mercy. Um, specifically, we're going to see three different ways that we are called to respond to the needs of people around us. And the first response that we see in this passage is listening ears. So the chapter opens with this great outcry of the people about what they're facing. They're, they don't have enough food. They're going deep into debt in order to make ends meet. And Nehemiah responds by getting very angry, it says. Not just regular angry. He gets very angry. Some of the, some of the translations say he gets extremely angry. He's livid about what's happening in his community. He is not a dispassionate uh, observer here. He's not just a task-oriented guy building this wall. He cares deeply about his community and about each of the individuals in it. And he doesn't just stay angry. Verse 7 says that he takes some time to think things over. Different translations say, I took counsel with myself, or I seriously considered the matter. He thinks carefully about how to respond to what he's observed. And then he calls the people together so that he can bring this problem out into the open. And, and what we see modeled here by Nehemiah is something that we see that's expected of us as God's people throughout 
the Old and the New Testament, right? We're called to, to listen, to observe, to be attentive to the needs of the people around us. The New Testament is filled with these full, uh, one another statements. So love one another, be devoted to one another, serve one another, encourage one another, be hospitable to one another. And one of the simple ways that we live this out in our community is just by being involved in life groups, right? Uh, if, you are, if you're not involved in a life group or if you're on the margins of a life group, I just want to encourage you to press into this. This is one of the ways that we're able to bring kind of the deepest issues that are going on in our lives, the needs that we're facing to one another and to care for one another. Uh, in our life group, in which we're like all congregated in one long row over here this morning. That's great. Our life group, but they didn't plan that. Hey, guys. <laughs> well, except for the Christians. Ambitious. Um, so one of the things that we do uh, about once a month is you just go around the room and share life updates of what people are facing and, and to take prayer requests. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the ladies in our group shared that she was just under particular stress that week. She, was, uh, she had a migraine that had come on that night, so she'd taken some medication. Uh, her husband was traveling on business, and so she was kind of in single parent mode for the week. And then she had to pack up her classroom where she teaches, and there was so much work that was going to go into that. So it was just a lot of things on the plate. And immediately, uh, Christian over here just hops straight in and says, hey, I can help with that. Like, Christian is a teacher, too, at a, at a high school, and she's done for the summer. So she said, I'd love to help you pack up your classroom. When can I help? And then Juan, do you guys know Juan and Christian? Yeah. Invite these guys over to dinner if you don't know them. They're awesome. So, so Juan, like, jumps right on, on top of that and says, like, hey, and you, you know what? You live, like, on the way home from us. We would be glad to just take your car and drive you home tonight. And it was just, like... This is a great picture of a listening community, how you respond immediately um, to needs that are around you. A couple days after that, um, Megan was out front in our apartment complex, and the girls were kind of riding their scooters around the, the courtyard. And uh, a neighbor of ours, who we've been forming a friendship with over the past few months, uh, Megan bumped into her. She had fallen um, and, had, and had injured her back, and she was wanting to go to the ER uh, to get it checked out. But she didn't have anyone to take her. And so Megan and Steph Kristen and, and Steph Ramirez, I was going to give her a shout too. <laughs> they, they all gathered around her to pray over this neighbor of ours. And uh, they, so this neighbor has come to, to the life group a few times, has come to church a few times. Several people in this room have begun forming a friendship with her. But these three women prayed over her, prayed that God would heal her, prayed that, that she would have favor in the emergency room, prayed that she wouldn't have anxiety. So Steph dropped, Steph Ramirez dropped what she was doing <laughs> and, uh, and took her up to the ER that night. And then this neighbor came back to Megan the next day to say that she was just amazed at how quickly she got through the ER, how much better she was feeling, and just really attribute it to the prayer of these three women. So I share those just a couple of quick stories. Those are the first ones that kind of popped into my head as I was preparing for this. There's, there's many more that we could share, but that's just a picture of what listening community looks like. We... Um, we have the privilege as a community of faith to be present in our community, to be attentive to the people around us, to understand the challenges that they're facing. And, and obviously, we can't address every problem, but we can start by listening. Um, I read a, a fascinating book uh, and, and kind of, yeah, um, alarming book recently called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How We Can Heal. And one of the chapters in there focused in on uh, what the author called the epidemic of loneliness in America. 
And uh, he, he pulls together all these um, really just alarming stats. I'm just going to share a few of them with you right now. So one-fifth, one in five Americans say that loneliness is a major source of unhappiness in their lives. A third of people over the age of 45 say that they struggle with chronic loneliness. The average American only has two people that they feel comfortable discussing important life matters with. And a quarter, one in four Americans, say that they have no one with whom they can talk about things that matter. One in four Americans say they have no one with whom they can talk about things that matter. So as we strive to be a community of mercy, we need to be aware that this is the world that we're wanting to reach. There are people out there who need community. As, as Neil shared, God sets the lonely into families. So we need to form relationships. We need to have our eyes and our ears open to areas of pain and suffering and just everyday needs around us. As Nick shared last week, this can start by something as simple as just bringing a loaf of banana bread or a plate of cookies to our neighbors. So whatever it is, the, the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is what are we doing? What am I doing to intentionally form relationships with people in my community? What am I doing to have a listening ear? So the second response that we see in this passage is repentant hearts. So Nehemiah, he, he listens, he takes time to consider what to do, he calls the people together, and then he calls them out on their sin. The people were in clear violation of the Torah, of the Jewish law. Uh, Deuteronomy 23.19 says, Do not charge your fellow Israelites interest, whether on money, provisions, or anything one might loan. Under the Jewish law, they were not to charge one another interest. What does Nehemiah say? You are all taking interest from your own people. They were also violating Jewish laws about slavery. So Leviticus 25, 42-43 says, Because the Israelites are my servants, whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. So under the Torah, if people became very poor, if they became destitute, there was a provision that allowed themselves to sell themselves into essentially hired servanthood, labor, but not slavery in those terms. It was against God's will for them to become slaves. But Nehemiah here, he says, what you are doing isn't good. Why don't you walk in the fear of our God? And so that's the first step in repentance, is recognizing that something is wrong. As Nehemiah says, what you are doing isn't good. And then Nehemiah, he calls them to not just recognize what they're doing is wrong, but to turn away from it. And so he, he calls them to stop charging interest, to give their property back, to stop making poor people poorer. And that's the second step in repentance, is turning away from our sin. So recognizing that something is wrong and turning away from it. Now, uh, I'm going to guess that not many of us in this room are actively oppressing poor people. Hopefully none of us are promoting slavery. But I think that many of us, if not all of us in this room, know what it's like to struggle with the same heart that these guys were dealing with. Because I don't think these lenders were being intentionally evil or mean-spirited. I think they were just looking out for their best interest. They were making loans and getting interest from it. They were trying to do something that made financial sense to them. In, in these uncertain times, they wanted some financial security or financial peace. At the heart of their actions, the problem that these people had was that they were so focused on their own well-being that they didn't take into account how their actions were impacting others. And another word for that is greed. As it turns out, greed is one of the most common and one of the most destructive idols that we find throughout the Bible. Um, 
New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg says that no other rival to God than money appears more often or centrally in Scripture. No other rival to God appears more often or centrally in Scripture. And greed was a huge area of Jesus' ministry. In Luke 12, 15, he warns, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now think for a minute what it looks like to be on your guard. If I, had, if I asked Neil to come up here and to guard Jeremy's guitar, what would that look like? What kind of posture would Neil take, right? What kind of like alertness would he have scanning the room for somebody to beat up, right? Exactly. You wouldn't go near that guitar. That's the posture that God, that Jesus calls us to have toward greed, to be on the lookout for it, to be ready to chase it away and pummel it, okay? One of the ideas that has really helped me in this area is becoming just more uh, aware of this principle called the, the principle of slight upward comparison. Slight upward comparison. So what this looks like is this. We, we live in Southern California. It's summertime. It's the time of year that we like to go down to the beach. And we drive along PCH and we see some of these amazing houses, right? I, uh, my office, we went down to, to Newport Bay uh, this week. We were riding around in duffy boats there in the bay. And we're looking at these amazing houses that are right up against the water, right? Um, John Wayne's old house, Nick Cage's old house. We're trying to guess how much these things are worth, so we're pulling up Zillow, and uh, $20 million, $25 million, $60 million, you know, some of these houses, it's amazing. And so we're, we're kind of like fantasizing about what it would be like to live there, you know, what it would be like to come home to this house every night. But I would imagine that most of us in this room, seeing a house like that, it doesn't like create this epic frustration in your life. It doesn't create this sense of like, why don't I have that? That's not fair because we know it's so far outside of the realm of possibility for us, right? <laughs> if, you, if you picture yourself on an economic ladder, that is so up near the top that you can't even see it. Instead, what we're prone to is slight upward comparison. So ever you're at on that ladder, we're fixated on the rungs that are just one or two above us, right? So if you live in an apartment, you're fixated on getting into a house. If you live in a house, you're fixated on getting into a better, nicer house. If you have three bedrooms, you want more, four. If you have four, you want the man cave, right? You want, <laughs> you want the bigger TV, you want the more prestigious job title, you want the better car, right? And none of those things are bad in and of themselves, right? Those things can be legitimate, they can be good wants, but what we have to do is to be aware of that tendency that lives within us, the tendency that we have to always look upward. We never are tempted to look downward, right? When you look upward, it breeds dissatisfaction. When you look downward, it breeds gratitude. When you look downward, you realize that there are millions and millions of people around the world who would love to be right where you're at on that ladder. So part of what we need to do as having repentant hearts is to recognize that tendency within us and to ask God to highlight for us how he might have different desires for what we, how we steward the money that he's entrusted to us. Um, it doesn't mean that we, we never move up the ladder. It doesn't mean that we can't have nice things or set goals. But it does mean that we question our motivations. Why do we want what we want? In our financial decisions, are we being driven by greed or are we being led by God? So as we strive to be a community of mercy, 
let's guard ourselves against the temptation to put our self-interest above the needs of others. And let's ask ourselves this question. Am I willing to ask God to make his priorities my priorities? Even if they don't make sense from the perspective of the latter. Even if they mess with my Dave Ramsey envelopes. (laughs) Hey, Dave Ramsey's great in a lot of ways. (laughs) All right, the final, final response that we see modeled in this passage is Open hands, open hands. So in Nehemiah 12, Nehemiah confronts the people with their sinful behavior. And the people agree to give all of the interest back and to stop charging for the loans that they're making. But not only do they agree to do this, it says in in verse 13 that the whole assembly then praises the Lord. So they may have started out by doing this begrudgingly or because Nehemiah is forcing them to, but ultimately they see that this leads to praise of God. And then Nehemiah, he goes on to describe his, his personal response to all of this, right? So uh, he becomes the governor of the territory, and for the next 12 years, he refuses to take the food allowance that he was entitled to as the governor. He knows that that allowance would have been paid for by these people, and he doesn't want to bring a greater burden upon them. So we remember that Nehemiah, he was the cupbearer. He was the trusted advisor to the king. So he must have had some wealth that came along with that. And he uses that to fund and cover his expenses in having to entertain all these dignitaries uh, around his table over the next 12 years. And he gives two reasons for this in the passage. One is that he has compassion on these people, but two, he has a fear or a reverence for God. He says that he is God-fearing. And this is the pattern that we see in Scripture, is that as we enter into a relationship with God, as we come to see his character, who he is, God transforms us to become more like him. So God is extravagantly generous. He makes us generous. God is unbelievable, un- unbelievably loving. So he makes us to love. When there is injustice and need around us, God has a way of stirring up his people to give generously and sacrificially. One of the passages that uh, articulates this so simply is 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. It says this, This is how we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But if someone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but refuses to help, how can the love of God dwell in a person like that? Little children, let's not love with words or speech, but with action and truth. What does it look like to practically love with action? We can look around us and see so many needs. It becomes overwhelming. (laughs) Tim Keller has um, a great book called Generous Justice. And in it he writes, Often we don't need to go looking for opportunities to do justice. Churches and Christians who seek to do justice have poor families and neighborhoods nearby. The problems seem vast and intractable. How do we even begin to think about how we can help? And he goes on to describe three different categories of help that we can offer as individuals and as church communities. And he describes them as relief, development, and reform. Relief, development, and reform. So relief is direct aid to meet immediately, immediate physical, material, and economic needs. And this can look like a lot of different things. This can be buying a Ralph's gift card for somebody who can't afford groceries. It can be babysitting the kids of somebody who can't afford childcare. Uh, it can be contributing 
backpacks to the YMCA drive, as Jeannie mentioned this morning. Um, from time to time, this church will help to cover the rent of people who can't afford to make their bills for the month. These are all direct, immediate ways that we can help people in need. Next is development. That's, that's longer term, and this is giving a person or a family what they need to improve their condition and become more self-sufficient. So again, there are a lot of ways that we can participate in things like this. In this community, it's looked like people getting involved in safe families or foster care. Uh, it's looked like people getting involved in OC United, initiatives like Soulful and uh, the Thrive Women's Ministry that uh, Lindsay Driggs helps to head up. Um, we've got people who are doing great work with, with Solidarity or serving with Camp Agape or supporting the Rancho Hermosa Orphanage down in Mexico. And in fact, the McLeods and the Longinos are going down there just right after church to spend the next week doing VBS with that orphanage. Awesome. Um, one of the things that Megan and I have done for years is just to sponsor a couple of kids through Compassion International, which is a great long-term way of helping to lift people out of poverty and set them into a better future. So relief, development, and then social reform. And this is, this is the more complex, longer-term one. This is recognizing that there are deeper issues at work that contribute to poverty and other, and other problems. And so it's in, involving things like political action and advocacy to help address problems like racism and homelessness and immigration policy and improving schools and so on. And it's so important that we have Christian voices who are involved in these areas, who are giving of their time and their resources in these areas. Nehemiah, in his leadership role, is very much helping to bring about social reform. So as we think about these different categories, I just want to hammer home that not all of this is financial. We're not just talking about money here. Having open hands doesn't just refer to finances. It involves giving of our, of our time and our energy as well. So don't limit yourself to money. Don't not limit yourself to money. But ask the question, as we strive to be a community of mercy, how is God calling me to give generously of my time and money to care for those in need? How does God want me to love, not just with words or speech, but with action and with truth? And uh, band, you guys can come on up. So we've looked quickly this morning at just three responses of a merciful community. And I, I just want to underscore that the key takeaway from this morning is not that we just need to try to do better in each of these areas, that we need to try to listen and try to be less selfish and try to be more giving. The truth that we need to come away with this morning is that the change in these areas can only happen as we are in relationship with God as we enter into relationship with Jesus, and we are transformed by him to become more like him. Because in each of these areas, in being attuned to the people around us, in putting our needs second, in giving generously, Jesus is our ultimate model. Jesus is the one who turned a listening ear to a world in need. He was the one who is attentive and still is to the needs of every person that he encountered. Jesus is the one who chose to turn away from the riches of heaven, and become poor for our sake. And Jesus is the one who made the ultimate sacrifice, literally with open hands outstretched on the cross so that we could experience true riches of forgiveness, of adoption, of redemption, and of abundant eternal life with him. So in a moment, we're gonna go back into worship, but before we do, I just wanna to fix our eyes on Jesus. And I'm gonna read a passage over us from Philippians 2 that glorifies Jesus as the ultimate example and the basis for why we can be a community 
of mercy. And I, I just wonder if you would close your eyes as I read this passage over us. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jason. Jason, thank you for the challenging call. Thank you for the reminder of where we find our strength. But before we move on, I just want to explain something. A hungry, a hungry stomach will one day just rot in the grave. These, these needs that are real, that are pressing, are small in comparison to our greatest need. We need salvation. We need to be rescued and ransomed. No matter what, no matter how long or short or hungry, it's going to stop. And eternity comes next. I've seen these analogies where preachers will run strings across the room. You walk in, what is that for? And they got this little thing tied at the end. And they're like, this is just an example of this. This two-inch portion is your life. And the hundred feet after that goes on for infinity is what awaits us. And the cool thing is, we don't just get rid of salvation. We get, we get saved so that way we, that we get access to heaven. But when we encounter God, we come alive. When I became a Christian, the first thing I did is study every single religion I could find. And there was one thing I saw in common. There was always this staircase that you could build on your own to achieve righteousness and holiness and nirvana and all these other things. It was, it was a self-help talked about how you could get your stuff together so that you could qualify for what comes next. The only worldview in the world that I am aware of that says you cannot do it on your own message that Jesus gave. He said, if you want to save your life, you will lose it. If we want to do these things in our own strength, it's not going to work. But he says, if you're willing to lay your life down, your pride, your fear, you will find true life. And I cannot implore you enough, the longer I've walked with God, the more I've read scientific journals and philosophy, the more I have experienced the power of God's word alive in my life. I am not the same person that I used to be. I used to be incredibly greedy. And when my bank accounts gets full, I go, Lord, I wonder what you're going to do with it. I've watched it get full and I've emptied it. And you just wait and you wonder. So if you're here and you have met, you have yet to meet this king, I would love to introduce you. You're just in process, you have questions, but you want to take that first step today, we welcome that. So if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes, there's nothing spiritual about that, it's just privacy. 
If you're here this morning and maybe that thing they said about that buffalo alone and afraid and fearful and this thing of coming back to God, recounting him, seems scary. You're going to become maybe how you used to be or maybe you're afraid of what that's going to look like. It, it's, it's not what it seems like. It's something different. You get restored in who God truly intended you to be. Walking with Jesus doesn't make you less of yourself. It makes you more of who you are. So if that's you this morning, maybe your hands are sweaty, my chest was pounding, I couldn't understand what was going on, that was the Spirit of God renewing my mind and my heart. If you, maybe you don't feel these things, maybe it's like C.S. Lewis, this, just this, he was taking a drive and he had thought about everything he knew and he says, yeah, I believe that. He didn't feel anything. He got to where he was going, he's like, oh, I'm a Christian now. Maybe that's you. So if you're here and you would like to, to respond, we're not going to call you to the front. I would just love to pray for you after we're done worshiping, but would you raise your hand in obedience to this king? Is there anyone who would like to be redeemed and ransomed? Thank you. I see your hand. Is there anyone else? God, I thank you that everything you say is true. I thank you. It doesn't just stand the test of intellect. It stands the challenge of life. You knew what it would be like. You lived it. Lord, I thank you that you have not just commands for us to obey, but you give us the power to walk in your truth. And so, Lord, this morning, just as we prepare as the church to respond to the word of God, would you move in our hearts? Teach us what we need to know. Soften our hearts and shape our minds. Would you have your way with us?